Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasian program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I am joined by Georgi Safonov, visiting fellow with our program and director at the Center for Environmental and Natural Resource Economics at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. We're also joined by Nikos Safos, who's the deputy director and senior fellow at the CSIS Energy Security and Climate Change Program. Georgi is one of our three uh, visiting fellows from Russia, participating in a new initiative from the CSIS Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program that brings leading Russian voices together on climate change, civil society, and center region dynamics to understand Russia in this extraordinary time of climate change. Uh, we really welcome you to read Georgi's recent piece that he wrote for us on Russia's energy alternatives in a low-carbon future, and we're happy to share the link for you in the show notes. Nikos is, of course, our resident expert at CSIS on the geopolitics of energy, energy transition, and natural gas. He can walk you through the taxonomy of the European Union's new Green Deal. He is an absolute treasure, and I encourage you to read uh, so much of his great research on, on our CSIS website, as well as his extraordinary Twitter feed. In this episode, we're going to discuss what global carbon neutrality pledges mean for Russia's energy transition and how Russia will or won't adapt to uh, an extraordinary amount of external change in the global energy environment and energy transitions and what viable energy alternatives Russia may focus on the future. So let's get started. Georgi, let me turn to you first. Um, and as I said, you, you've really helped crystallize our thinking about the extraordinary challenges and pressure that will be placed on not only Russian energy firms, although we're going to concentrate on, on Russian energy companies in this episode, but really across the board, Russian industry on how global energy transitions and climate policies are forcing change. Let me turn to you and just give us a brief overview of what that pressure looks like and, and how is the Russian government managing it? Hi. Uh, yes, that's really, really uh, important questions that you raised. So Russia is a huge country, as we know, uh, possessing lots of uh, fossil fuels and also lots of green energy sources. So probably Russia is a champion in both types of uh, energy resources. So currently we have mostly developed our fossil fuel industries and uh, other industries support that fossil fuel uh, sector in Russian economy, say metallurgical producers or financial services. So everything is working on that big, big sector of Russia, which mostly produces, combusts and exports lots of coal, oil, and gas. So this is a very big thing. And that was constructed in the last 60, 70 years. So we, we know how to operate that, more or less. We may have some in inefficiencies with that, but uh, still, that's a big sector. So alternative to it, say, okay, let's switch to green energy sources because of, probably because of climate, maybe because of future generations, or just for the sake of health of Russians, which suffer from pollution of air from coal combustion in Siberia and forest of Russia. So what would be needed to do so? 
yes, we have huge potential. We have wind, solar, geothermal, tidal, biofuels, everything. But the share of that renewable sources at the moment in electricity production is 0.3% in total generation of electricity in Russia, meaning zero, nothing. And there are no projections about or plans to increase that share dramatically. Uh, We used to have some targets to double or triple the share of production by 2020, and these plans failed, as well as the plans to improve energy efficiency by 40% of the existing energy system. So, Russian government and industry fails to improve itself. The challenge is, okay, so what would move Russia towards green energy and green economy for the sake of climate, environment, and people? Uh, That's really strong and big question. I probably don't have an answer to it, but I feel that internal domestic Russian incentives are extremely weak. So we cannot change things. And the recent policies show that we we cannot improve energy efficiency as we wanted, or we cannot internally improve our renewables share in the uh, energy mix. So, I guess that external factors would drive Russia towards these green goals, and there are a few channels or drivers for that. And we probably will talk about specific drivers uh, soon, but uh, my feeling is that this external pressure affecting Russian uh, fossil fuel exporters and energy industry uh, as in general would definitely be meaningful for decision-making. So I guess the big sector that brings about half a trillion dollars a year of revenue, if there are any threats to it, so business models and policy-making would definitely change to support it or somehow adjust it to new conditions. Thanks, Georgi. Yeah, I mean, you just can sense this, you know, Russia as this massive carbon exporter. There's definitely potential for renewables, just have not really moved anywhere on both the, the, the renewables as well as enhancing energy efficiency. Change won't come from within, but boy, let's talk about the change that's going to come externally. And Nikos, I, I want to turn to you because Western energy companies, and again, we can, you know, we can do mining companies, transportation companies, we can broaden this out a little bit, have been experiencing pretty profound change. Their investors are demanding it. Uh, Investment funds, pension funds uh, are demanding it. This whole ESG movement, I mean, there are huge offices within major energy companies that are dedicating themselves to this. Can you help us understand a bit what uh, Western energy companies, the pressure that they're under, and then maybe you can help us understand what is coming to Russian energy companies that do trade internationally that are susceptible to international uh, investment and partnership with Western companies? what they're likely to encounter. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me, Heather. We've really seen a transformation over the last few years in this conversation. And I think it begins with an understanding that the transition to low carbon energy sources is going to have profound consequences for the financial system. That is really the starting point. We're talking about physical risks. Uh, We're going to have floods. We're going to have droughts. We're going to have uh, infrastructure that is destroyed, that has to be maybe rebuilt. Uh, We're going to have uh, assets that are sitting 
uh, in the midst of uh, damages. And so there's a sense that the financial system is not really pricing these risks adequately in how it allocates capital, in who lends money to whom. There's a second recognition that the energy transition itself is going to make some assets uh, redundant. If you have a coal-fired power plant that you thought you're going to run for 40 years and you only run it for 10 or 15 or 20, someone is going to lose money on that power plant, either the owners of the plant or maybe you won't be able to pay back the loan. And if you can't pay back the loan, the bank that has given you the loan may have trouble. So this idea that there's so much capital deployed in the world geared towards hydrocarbons, and as we transition, that capital may lose value. That has huge ripple effects for the financial system. And third is a sense that if we as a society have targets to achieve greenhouse gas neutrality by 2050 or by 2060, then we need the financial system to do its part. And so we need to think about how do you channel capital from the things that you don't want towards the things that you do want to do. So that's really the backdrop. And you've seen the conversation grow and spread. You're seeing it in central bankers, financial regulators. You're seeing it from asset managers, anyone that is uh, holding capital or deploying capital. You're seeing it, of course, from activists uh, and people demanding greater accountability and greater transparency. I would say for the last few years, we've really gone through the reporting and transparency phase of this conversation where uh, people are asking for more information and better information. Uh, and where we've ended up is we have a lot more information, maybe not as much as we should, but the information is really messy and it's really hard to make sense because people are reporting different things in different ways. It's very difficult to compare company A with company B or jurisdiction A with jurisdiction B. So the next phase really is really going to be the consolidation of this information and a benchmarking of this information. But what we're seeing is a few things uh, happen. We're seeing a lot of the traditional hydrocarbon companies uh, have to come up with a compelling story about how they will survive in the energy transition. Um, you've seen companies like BP be very upfront that they want to go from an international oil company to an international energy company. You've seen other players as well make big announcements in electric vehicles and solar and wind, offshore wind, which plays to the strengths of the oil and gas industry. Uh, you've seen them uh, go into hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, a lot of new technologies. Part of it is a response to these pressures and a recognition that in order to be relevant, you have to play in the markets of the future. And you're also seeing the financial sector sort of respond to that. The financial sector has been, I would say, quite disappointed by the returns that the oil and gas companies have generated over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And so I think there's a cynical side to folks who say, well, this is just because the oil and gas sector has underperformed, that ESG is going to go away, that once the returns get better, uh, the money will flow back in. I think there's some truth to that, but not as much as maybe the critic would say. This is really a massive shift in how we think about what is financiable. We've seen over the last year and a half, a number of banks say they no longer want to finance projects in the Arctic, something that over time would be relevant for Russia as well. So the question is, 
how do you as a company that is accessing international capital markets how can you demonstrate to those capital markets that you are part of the solution that you are investing capital in the sectors that need investment that if you are producing hydrocarbons how are you doing it with the lowest possible footprint implementing innovative technologies and business solutions to make sure that for whatever oil or gas comes out of the ground the energy and the carbon associated with those molecules are as low as possible those pressure points are really increasing and it's going to be very hard for companies to ignore this wave so far we haven't seen it spread as much to state-owned companies some of them have been especially state-owned companies that are 100% owned by states, it's a little bit harder to use the levers of shareholder um, activism to sort of pressure those companies. But even companies that are mildly exposed to, this, to the stock market and, and several of the, of the Russian state-owned companies have market exposure, that trajectory is coming. And so that pressure point is coming. And so when we need to think about how do these companies adjust over time, it's not just, you know, what does your shareholders in the Kremlin want? It's also how do you interact with a financial system that is putting up a whole host of new demands on what companies should be doing going forward vis-a-vis -vis the energy transition. Thanks, Nikos. Uh, Georgi, I'm wondering if you could help us think how a Russian energy firm is that is exposed to the market somewhat how it is responding to the changes that nikos has said obviously we're still in this sort of reporting transparency phase so i'd be curious sort of what is the transparency that russian firms are offering um and sort of their own prospectus of, of surviving this great transition and so as Nikos was talking, I was thinking about, so for instance, Novatech and its, its concentration of, um, you know, on the Yamal Peninsula, the LNG project, really, uh, I think a, a, for, for Russia, an energy future because of LNG and, and the Arctic, it's very focused. How would a Novatech sort of respond to ESG reporting requirements, international financial insurance pressure about Arctic exploration. If you know something in particular, if not, you can offer some broader reflections. I'd just be curious to see how Russian companies are going to begin to grapple with these issues that Nikos has laid out. Yeah, that's very, very good question. Again, what I see from behavior of Russian uh, energy companies, including those in oil and gas sector, is that they, they are really concerned about the prospects, about the restrictions, threats, and uh, other aspects of carbon or climate protectionism, as they be, uh, call it. So companies exporting fossil fuels or other products, say metals, chemical fertilizers to the European Union, they really are concerned about the border adjustment tax that will likely affect their businesses. You may just imagine that uh, totally Russia exports, uh, Russian exports have approximately 2 billion tons of uh, CO2 of carbon footprint. So 2 billion tons. Approximately 45% of it, 1 billion ton of CO2, is a footprint of Russian export to Europe. So the companies understand that if Europe has a price tag for carbon footprint, Today, it is approximately $50 a ton of CO2. So what would happen to their business if 
their footprint would be priced. That definitely changes the business model for metal producers like uh, steel, iron, uh, aluminum, and others. For chemical producers as well, huge additional load on their uh, costs. It also has some relation to exports of fossil fuels and, say, refinery products, um, because somehow that CO2 or methane emissions would be priced, whether it would be as a tax or it would be included in the costs of um, providers of energy. So, we don't know exactly, but somehow the price would appear. And not only in European Union, we see that climate neutrality goals were uh, adopted by Japan, South Korea, China, Canada, U.S. considering it. So, more and more export markets for Russia will uh, face the carbon regulation and carbon pricing uh, mechanisms. So, what Russian producers think of it? Just recently, I made a review of different corporate reports of Russian leading oil and gas companies. What I found there was very interesting. So one of the worst in terms of environmental pollution and climate impact companies and biggest oil company in Russia, Rosneft. So they have a wonderful report, but almost nothing about strategy to reduce emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions specifically. So they show that they do something. For instance, they planted one million trees, but one million trees in territory that would be planted in Russia is not comparable to the annual damage to territories in Russia uh, because of their operations. So, nothing related to climate uh, ambition, nothing related to real reporting even. Because today, Russian companies face the challenge of how to report their carbon emissions. And there are three scopes. So direct emissions is one story. This is relatively easy. So companies uh, emitting something they want, they may report, and uh, and that's not it, because scope two and scope three cover upstream and downstream emissions. Say you are Rosneft company or Novatec gas supply uh, company. So you produce something, your direct direct emissions are very low, because of the technological processes. But those who burn LNG or burn refineries products or uh, gas or uh, oil, so they produce lots of emissions. And now, today, the more and more spread approach is to account for all three scopes as responsibility of those companies. For instance, Rosneft must report about emissions that were made because of use of their products. This is a very new profile for them in terms of reporting, and it complicates their life. To finish with the corporate reporting, so I have not found any Russian company presenting sound and ambitious targets and strategies to decarbonize their production. Unlike many other companies in Europe, for instance, uh, and transnational companies, say Shell, BP, the last big European uh, energy producer, any, uh, made a statement about their uh, climate goals. And all, the, all, all these companies move towards climate-friendly or climate-neutral uh, models in the f- 
future, say by 2050, but not Russian companies. Georgi, thank you so much. And you've, you've just hit a couple of issues we, we are going to dig a little deeper into, the carbon neutrality policies of the European Union and Asian markets, as well as some of the, the, the trade and investment, the, car, the carbon border adjustment mechanisms and things like that. Nikos, I want to turn to you just a, a quick follow-on to what Georgi said, and then I want to move into first the EU's uh, cli- uh, climate policies and, and how impactful they will be on, on Russian energy. But as Gorgi mentioned, I mean, because uh, U.S. companies, because of Western uh, U.S. sanctions are really no longer part of Russia's energy picture, but we really have major European energy firms that are have been in long-term partnerships with Russian energy companies. How much pressure is going to start weighing on the Totals, the Enis, the BPs, the Shells, as, you know, they're trying to manage these requirements, um, but yet they are still in partnership in in Russia, which perhaps aren't taking all these factors into account. How do you see those pressures and how do the partners, can they stay with Russian partners or will they eventually be pressured in some ways to, to pull back from them? That's a great question. I think it you really have to think about this in with some granularity because I think you're seeing different pressures on different companies. And I think the real question that we're going to have to face more broadly with respect to state-owned companies is, you know, what is better? Do you want to be a partner and try to influence because you're a partner? Or do you want to disassociate yourself uh, from companies that aren't being as ambitious, that don't have best practice when it comes to either reporting or, or operations. And so you're seeing companies give different answers to this question. Uh, so BP has come under pressure uh, because of its ownership in Rosneft. You know, Total, obviously, as you said, uh, is very active in the Arctic. Um, but I think the real question comes back to what are we measuring and what are we asking of these companies? Because if you look at what Novatech would say is, well, we have a relatively new facility in Yamal, and the carbon footprint of this facility is quite low because the gas is coming from one field. We have new equipment. It's not leaking. It's not old. And so we're actually, they would say, a good project because if you're going to produce gas, you want to produce it as cleanly as possible. So I think you have this moment in ESG, as I said before, where we've had all the data, but people report data in so many different ways and people are judging companies in so many different ways. And so you can say that this, the emission intensity of how much emissions is coming per unit of production is low or high. Uh, The critics would say that the atmosphere doesn't care about emissions intensity. The atmosphere cares about emissions because it's emissions that are warming the planet, not emissions intensity. So I think we're still seeing the evolution of these conversations and how far they will go and what kind of responses are going to be uh, viable depending on where you are. But we haven't uh, quite seen, I think, with, with some minor exceptions, that pressure on Western firms uh, because of their partnerships. But it's a big conversation because it's not just about Russia. It's about the Middle East. It's about elsewhere where, you know, you may be a joint venture partner 
And depending on how your partnership is structured, you may actually not have a lot of power or a lot of information about what your partner is doing. So the ability to influence or the ability to pressure a firm for their lack of action as a joint venture partner, it gets really tricky uh, depending on how the governance of the relationship is, is working. So I think for now we have seen more of the pressure on sort of the core operations of these companies. But as we've said, it's coming uh, and your uh, joint venture partnerships, your equity partnerships in Russia and elsewhere, those are going to be uh, sort of coming forward in the conversation as time goes on because it's impossible to avoid these uh, these conversations. So I think you're going to see more and more of that uh, going going forward. And it's going to, you know, especially Novatech has been very successful at attracting uh, foreign partners at a time of relative isolation for the oil and gas sector in Russia. And this will be another factor that they'll have to navigate and making sure that the partners they reach out to are comfortable with telling their investors and their shareholders that they're planning a massive expansion in the Arctic. Uh, That's going to become a complicating factor for them going forward. Not an easy uh, line to walk for sure in the future, but but fascinating. Nikos, let me just uh, stay with you for a moment. And uh, now we're going to expand out into some very, uh, very important uh, climate ambitions, particularly for the European Union in, in their new Green Deal, their um, pandemic uh, recovery and resilience facility, um, very much targeting uh, green uh, technologies, things like that. As you, I know you, you've studied the taxonomy, uh, trying to understand uh, uh, as this pro- policy evolves. Are there things in the EU's carbon neutrality plans, its new green deal, that should be of particular concern to Russian colleagues? And, and then after you're done answering that question, Georgi, I'm going to turn to you from the Russian perspective. What concerns you the most about uh, Russia's primary energy market, the European Union? But Nikos, let me start with you first. At the macro level, the answer is absolutely. You are, uh, as Russia, heavily exposed to an economy that wants in 30 years to no longer use the products that you export. I mean, that is the strategic reality. The question is, what do you do about it? Do you take a cynical view and say, well, this is all talk, it's going to be slow, we don't have to worry about it? I, I think the European ambition is beyond doubt. And I would say of all the governments and entities around the world that have made similar ambitions, the European pledges are the most detailed, they are the most well articulated, and they are the ones that have the clearest amount of money and policy to back them up. So I think anyone who uh, makes a bet against the EU Green Deal as a broad thrust. Now, you know, things will fail, things will not go as planned, absolutely. But as a broad thrust, I think you have to be operating under the assumption that the demand for oil and gas in Europe is going to be dropping quickly over the next 30 years. Now, the question I think for Russia is, you know, what do you do about that? What we've seen from countries around the world is a combination of denial, 
sometimes we've seen countries decide to front load their resources and say, well, if we're not going to be selling anything in 2050, let's try to sell as much as we can sooner. Arguably, Gazprom has tried to do a little bit of that by being more accommodating in its pricing strategy with a desire to sell gas. Novatech arguably is doing the same thing as it is accelerating the development of LNG in the Yamal Peninsula. You've seen countries and companies say, well, if there's going to be a shrinking market, I want to still compete in that market. So I want my gas or my oil to be as economically competitive as possible, as environmentally sound as possible. You saw Saudi Aramco always talks about the greenhouse gas intensity of its oil production as a differentiating asset. So you could see Russian companies say that it might be a smaller market, but we want to be the ones to supply it in Western and Eastern Europe. And fourth, you've seen a strategy of branching out and saying, if it's not oil and gas, what else could it be? And the Russians are behind on that, on the conversation about hydrogen in particular is probably the area where they could have the most competitive advantage, although I'm not quite sure that they will. But I think that the challenge also emerges when you think not of 2050, because that's far away, but of the transition. And you've seen this in the conversations around Nord Stream 2, where, frankly, the focus on Nord Stream 2 is the focus of a pipeline that a lot of people in Western Europe just don't get animated about. They think this is a pipeline of the past. And so this centrality of hydrocarbons in the geopolitical relationship, once Europe says, I'm done with hydrocarbons, even if you're not actually done with hydrocarbons, that just changes the conversation because you don't have these topics hanging over you in the same way that you've had in the past, even if you may be importing hydrocarbons at the same time. So it changes, I think, the tenor of the relationship once you say that this is just a transitory uh, economic relationship that we have. And so I think that's important. The other thing that we haven't really thought about a lot is... In reality, the transition is in Europe is going to be uneven among countries as it has in the past. So you may find yourself in an odd position where, you know, the markets for Russia become Central and Eastern Europe that don't really want to be reliant on Russian gas at a time when Western Europe is diversifying away from natural gas faster. So there's going to be, even if that end state uh, looks like we have sort of severed some of the ties, 30 years is a long way, and a lot of things can happen as we manage that transition. So it's going to be tough to think about, even if the end state gives us a clear picture of what the relationship might be, there's going to be a lot of bumps in the road. And I think the Russians sometimes feel like during those bumps, they're going to find a way to remain relevant, remain competitive. I think Russians believe that they're going to be the last people to sell gas to Europe, that the last molecule of gas in Europe is going to come from Russia. That's probably true. But the geopolitical relevance of that last molecule is going to be so different because the clear sense from Europe is we are ready to move on. Thank you, Nikos. Georgi, how is that view from Russia? What are Russian companies, 
Russian government most concerned about, particularly the European um, Green Deal. And you certainly you want to dive into the carbon border adjustment mechanism. That's perfectly fine, too, because that's a part of it. Or are there equal concerns about the uh, Asia-Pacific theater, where Russia was quite late in adjusting uh, its markets, a little bit diversifying away from Europe to China, to Asia, sort of trying to catch up through pipeline as well as LNG, but would welcome your thoughts on the Russian perspective of all of this change. Well, uh, let, let me st- start with some uh, different perspectives, different angle. So Russia's reserves of fossil fuels, specifically coal, gas, and oil, if they would be extracted and combusted, not only in Russia, but elsewhere, so that may easily lead to further warming up to three centigrees or three and a half centigrees. So huge amount of carbon is underground. So Russian companies owning these assets believe that they own some big uh, capital assets. So they would definitely not wish to get rid of that or feel that this capital is disappearing. That's why they are angry about any carbon pricing or carbon regulation, uh, not only in Russia, but uh, external regulation that may affect their business. And angriness is reasonable for them. They don't believe in any climate or environmental problems. They don't care about them. So they want to earn their money, sell their assets, and they be, be happy, even in the short term, uh, period. I should also agree with uh, Nikos and uh, Ed slightly that quite blinded strategies, very short-term focus strategies, are dominant in Russian energy businesses. I mean, oil and gas and coal. So they want to sell now as much as they can because still there is a price, still there are uh, those who want to buy, they have contracts, and they want to export as much as possible. But they now face the challenges. One new challenge they faced recently was about building a special port near Murmansk in the northwest of Russia. So a special coal export port was designed and actually the work has started there. But recent meeting of companies who wanted to supply coal through this port, ended in a failure. So they didn't agree to support building of that port and invest in it because they said, we are not sure about demand for our coal. They couldn't sell a lot of coal last year to Europe. So now they don't envisage any big demand. So their profit of building, investing in that port uh, is very uh, doubtful. Different focus on Asia, Uh, there are logistical problems there, as well as construction of additional facilities in ports and railways that also affects the speed of transfer to the Asian direction for Russian coal supplies, as well as oil and gas uh, supplies. So, and then we see the processes of adopting ambitious climate uh, strategies in China, Japan and uh, Korea, the biggest uh, buyers of Russian fossil fuels. And also we see some big changes in India, as India was considered as a big uh, buyer of coal forever. 
because they need energy, they need to provide electricity to a big share of population that still has no access to it. So they will buy everything. And that is changing now. So India is becoming one of champions in uh, renewables. So, so Russian companies face these problems with exports. Different companies, different industries face different problems. For instance, coal, they feel no demand in Europe and they are losing demand in, in Asia. Uh, oil, still okay. Uh, the markets work. They have contracts, they supply. And gas in, uh, supplies like Gazprom and Novatech, they believe if Germany and others, other companies, uh, Japan, uh, would uh, reduce consumption of coal and also nuclear power, they would definitely need energy, and that would be natural gas. So that's their belief. They want to increase at least by 50% their exports to these markets because of that climate, uh, ambitious climate strategies of that countries. But recent modeling results and projections show that by 2030, there would be probably reduction in gas demand in EU, for instance, and also in uh, China and uh, Japan. I'm not quite certain about what would be the scale of that reduction or if reduction would happen, but that is a threat to uh, uh, gas suppliers, Novatec and Gazprom. So, stronger measures, for instance, appearance of a high price for carbon would affect that supplies definitely. Say, imagine $50 a ton of CO2, uh, the current price at uh, European emission trading system. If that would be added to all carbon footprint that is exported to EU from Russia, that would definitely change behavior of companies. So you cannot imagine steel producer exporting with such a tax. So because it breaks the, the model, they have no profit. Uh, similar about fossil fuels, coal is banned if such a price appears. So I think the carbon pricing tools are extremely important. And that's why Russian companies, they go to Putin, they go to government and raise these questions. So the current challenge is to develop a new strategy uh, by 2030 of how Russian economy and Russian export industries would survive in such conditions. This is something new. And uh, currently there is a plan to develop such a strategy, evaluating different risks, but probably not opportunities. And that is a pity. So I agree and slightly disagree with Nikos about the idea of hydrogen. The idea of hydrogen is around in Russia for many decades. Uh, Russian experts even say we are champions in uh, technologies on production of hydrogen. The question is, what color is the hydrogen? So is it a green hydrogen produced uh, by electrolysis using renewable energy sources? Or it is blue hydrogen produced using uh, molecules of uh, methane, splitting it into uh, substances and having hydrogen, but having high carbon footprint. So what would be demanded in the markets? That's a big discussion today. There are plenty of experts and uh, even companies uh, addressing this question because hydrogen 
is, I would agree with it, uh, is considered as the biggest uh, substitute for fossil fuels. It can be used for transport, uh, for electricity production, for many, many things, even for production of carbon neutral steel. And this is a big concern for Russian steel makers because they they consider that hydrogen technologies are the threat for their model of business using coal, not hydrogen. If at some point all European market, all US market, uh, Japanese market would switch to hydrogen steel, they would just disappear from the market. And that's very sensitive for them. So they behave differently depending on understanding of threats. Uh, but I see more and more that unlike bureaucrats, uh, officials in the ministries that have very short-term uh, thinking, these in industry guys, they uh, think much in longer perspective and their strategic ideas more focus on threats and also opportunities. So there is some contradiction. Russia has no ideas about opportunities, but thinks about risks more or less. While companies try to think about opportunities, and we have a few cases when that appears and companies behave differently. For instance, Russian aluminium producer Rusal uh, developed a new brand of aluminium, low-carbon aluminium, and that is positioned in the market as a, a climate-friendly uh, alternative to normal aluminium. Georgi, that was absolutely fascinating. I, I, as you were explaining the Murmansk uh, coal export uh, port facility and its failure, I was, I was thinking as you were speaking of of Stockman, the natural gas find in the Arctic at about the same time that U.S. unconventionals uh, uh, came online, that just basically eliminated uh, the need for exploration of Stockman. And um, I, you know, just thinking again, the technological change, what we understand today but the technology that may also um, really push massive upheaval and, and transition, hopefully hopefully for the good, that that's also going to just intensify this feeling of just dramatic transformation. And as you said, you know, um, wh whereas some in Russia see all the risk and are trying to manage and minimize the risk while short term focusing on us producing as much carbon as possible um others are seeing that in that industry transformation and how they can survive it and in that survival will certainly be uh some opportunity well i can't begin to thank you both so much i know this was this is a deep subject it's got a lot of technical understanding but this is as i said i think the most significant impact of change that will be coming to Russia and certainly coming from external forces. And I can't thank you both enough for helping us uh, understand all of those challenges. We're going to have to have you back, put that crystal ball back on the table and see uh, where those uh, predictions hold. So that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for our show today. This has been a great conversation. And if you would like to continue learning about the economics of climate change in Russia or climate activism and internal dynamics within Russia, I encourage you to visit our Russia in the Time of Climate Change page. Please check out the show notes again for the link to this page and Georgi and Nico's bios. 
For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and or leaving us a rating and review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And again, keep spreading the word. And finally, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who works so hard to make this podcast happen, including our associate fellow, Cyrus Newland, and our producer, program manager, Roxana Gobudilina, and the entire CSIS External Relations and Ideas Lab team. Thanks for listening. <laughs>